0: Welcome to the latest installment of Paradigm Shifts, the official podcast of the National Foundation of Emergency Medicine. The purpose of this podcast is to create visibility for young and soon-to-be-prolific academic emergency physicians by highlighting their research and their vision for their field. We hope to introduce these ideas to you, the listener, and to expand and maybe even redirect your thinking toward the forefront of both the science and the philosophy of emergency medicine. So today I'm joined by Dr. Gabriel Warty. Dr. Wardy completed his undergraduate and graduate education in Atlanta. He moved to San Diego for his residency in emergency medicine, where he served as the education chief resident during his final year of residency. He's the first graduate of the Joint Critical Care Medicine Fellowship offered by the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care and the Department of Emergency Medicine. He is currently an assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine and critical care, attending in both the emergency department and the ICUs at UC San Diego. He's the medical director for hospital sepsis at UCSD and directs the residency transition course for the School of Medicine. Dr. Wardy's research interests include sepsis, the EDICU interface, resuscitation, cardiac arrest management, and development of novel educational curriculum. Dr. Wardy, welcome.
1: Thank you. Uh, very excited to be here.
0: So today we'll be discussing a broad overview of your research, but specifically talking about machine learning for sepsis. And the three paradigms that your research addresses are as follows. So number one, human-machine symbiosis with machine learning algorithms can aid in the early detection of sepsis and septic shock. Number two, transfer learning can improve generalizability and portability of machine learning algorithms. And number three need for tracheal intubation in patients with COVID-19 can be predicted with machine learning algorithms. So very interested to hear about machine learning and the interface. Uh, I think that it's, we talked a little bit earlier about how uh, this is not anything that's particularly new, uh, new or novel as far as an idea, but the application of it sure seems to be. So before we get started, can you tell us a bit about how you became interested in this area of research?
1: Absolutely so uh, as a resident I got you know interested in ways that we could kind of take care of our septic patients better and specifically you know what I was interested in is we were getting a lot of, you know, notifications from our ICU teams that patients with sepsis we admitted uh, to the wards would unexpectedly end up in the ICU. The question I had was, well, what can we do? I stuck around with that. And, you know, sepsis was kind of one of my interests as a, as a fellow uh, when I was in the ICUs uh, and like all enthusiastic young fellows and junior faculty, uh, I was somewhat voluntold that the hospital sepsis committee and the implementation of our SEP1 core measure was something that was pretty important to the institution and that I would be a perfect person to to help kind of shape the policy going on in our emergency department. So I tackled that. And I think, you know, I think we all recognize that the SEP1 core measure certainly has some benefits. It's put the spotlight on sepsis. Um, on the flip side, though, there are some people as I think you've probably spoken to that do have some criticisms that are fairly valid. Uh, And for the most part in the emergency department, I think we have it relatively easy compared to the inpatient side, where most patients about, you know, probably 80, 85 percent present relatively obvious triage. You can say, hey, this person is septic, they're febrile, tachycardic, hypotense. Uh, You don't really need someone to kind of help with that. But there is a subset of these patients that are, you know, a little bit sneakier, that don't really have classic symptoms, uh, or might present, you know, with their, uh, deterioration, you know, three, four, five, six hours after they're, uh, already, been, after they've already been triaged. And so I know you spoke with, you know, some of the, you know, people doing research on this last year, uh, but things like that, right? These are the things that I think really where we benefit from caring for these patients. It's not for the obvious ones, but it's for the ones that have a little more subtle signs kind of identifying these. Uh, and so, as you know, we started working on this at UC San Diego. The, uh, the prior chair of the hospital sepsis committee Probably got a little bit fed up with it dealing with all the complaints that were coming her way. And next thing I knew was that I was, again, voluntold that I'd be a perfect person to chair a committee and to kind of oversee some pretty significant quality improvement sides on the inpatient arena that were implemented right before I took over. And so probably one of the best things about this, though, is taking over this committee was that I was linked up with an extremely talented and very, uh, you know, kind of honestly, a a rising star that I think will probably shape a lot of what happens with machine learning in the coming decades named Dr. Shamim Namati. And we kind of work together as, you know, as the clinician and the informaticist uh, and machine learning expert to work together to find ways that we can improve outcomes of our patients that are septic in the hospital. So that was kind of the introduction that I had. And this was, you know, about probably almost about a year ago is when I started working with him. And to be honest, right, a lot of these terms are somewhat intimidating when you hear people talk about machine learning, deep learning, transfer learning. And I think, you know, it's something that they're not that difficult to kind of understand at a conceptual level what's going on, on the mathematical level, and the algorithm development that is something that I have the utmost respect for people that are doing that, particularly with some of the, the newer things that are being
0: done. This is a lot like uh, face ID as a concept. Sounds great, makes sense. Look at my face, it opens my phone telling me, you need to figure out how to do this, I go, yeah, no, I'm going to go do anything else. Uh, It just seems to be beyond me. But this is the kind of thing that, as you mentioned when we were talking before we started recording, that this is in pretty much every decision instrument, every uh, kind of... Rule that's coming out right now is things like the pediatric appendicitis risk calculator, uh, the PCARN febrile infant study. Some of these cutoffs, they're they're not as clean and crisp because they're actually done by machines and not rounded to make our to make it more appealing to us as clinicians.
1: Absolutely, and I think you know, I think just you know to kind of get one of the you know what is machine learning. I think that's one of the things where people tend to get you know caught up on. Uh, and honestly, if you want to define it, you know, kind of at the most basic level, it's the study of these of algorithms that improve through experience, through giving them new data. So if you want to honestly go back to the first time that a machine algor- machine learning algorithm was actually used, it's going to be back in the 1960s, actually, where people were starting to experiment with logistic regression. And so every time you've gone through and used any, I'm sure you've used this in some of your own research, right? That's, it's a form of machine learning Now it doesn't have you know some of the big data elements and some of you know the advanced things when we start talking about using neural networks to kind of classify information. but it is a form of that and it has you know it has changed how we approach you know the, the care of a lot of patients and so you know as, as we've gotten better with technology as computers have gotten faster as we have the ability to now use our electronic health records, it's opened up these, these doors where we can suddenly use, you know, use the power of, you know, get data from hundreds of thousands or even millions of patients and use these algorithms to kind of go through and see what is important. And the important thing, you know, the, the nice thing about these algorithms is a lot of times is with more data they get, the more, uh, the more accurate they'll become. And then we start talking, you know, about the implementation of them, which is a, an entire science of itself. But I think that's something that's very, very important right now, because you know, as we talk about some of the stuff that you know that we're doing right now, a lot of machine learning studies are going to be retrospective in nature, observational, taking large sets of data, distilling down, you know, kind of the key things. And then giving, you know, kind of an output, you know, a risk assessment or, you know, is this person going to meet a diagnosis of this? But, you know, if you want to take it to the next level, right, it's going to be that implementation into our clinical workflow to see is this going to improve outcomes. And I think that's really, really the the, to me, at least that's a very, very exciting part that hopefully we'll get some randomized trials in the future to see are these uh, algorithms that we're using actually improving the diagnosis of sepsis or picking up on delayed septic shock.
0: I think this is incredible that we're able to do this. Uh, I think it's going to turn out a lot better than Face ID, because at the time, that seemed like a great idea. Now, in the era of COVID-19, where everybody's masked, it just seems like a dumb idea. I wish I had my thumbprint yeah. back. But uh, So so let's start with your first paradigm. So uh, human-machine symbiosis with machine learning algorithms can aid in the early detection of sepsis and septic shock. And you alluded to, we uh, interviewed Dr. Michael Philbin last year, the year before, And talked to him about one of his papers that basically said that if a patient doesn't present an overt sepsis where it's clearly obvious to everyone, then uh, this patient is going to have a worse outcome. And there's a lot of things to take from that. One of them is, well, how are we supposed to find it if they're not overtly septic? And I think that this goes that one step further to not only define what some of these characteristics are, but how we actually teach these to our learners. I just had a septic patient with a, a junior resident the other day who he said, oh, I think she's fine. Her blood pressure was low. Now it's better. And just having, you know, 10 years on this resident, I was able to look at this patient and go, nah, it's just something not right. This patient's, you know, going to be sick. You got to keep a close eye on them." And surely enough, in about two or three hours, we found she had pylo, uh, she had that endotoxin release, dumped her pressures again, ended up on leave of Fed and went up to the ICU. Uh, and he said, you know, how, do you, how did you see that was going to happen? I go, well, unfortunately, it's just experience. But how do you get experience in? This is a way to actually teach some of these things in a faster manner uh, to be able to help train that gestalt that we all end up having
1: absolutely and i think you know the first part you know that you know i put there right is this you know it's this um Human machine symbiosis, because I think you know, kind of the I think one of the pitfalls when people start talking about machine learning in medicine is right. We're not, we don't want the machines to overtake kind of what you know humans are doing. That's not the point. The point is to kind of I think you know probably the best way to think about it, particularly for sepsis, is increase your situational awareness and say, hey, yeah, just like your resident that situation, why is this person getting sick? You know, well, let's take a look and kind of see what's going on here. And, you know, one of the things at least we've tried to do with, you know, working with Dr. Namadi is you know the, I think the key thing for clinicians is to have something that's interpretable, right? If you just have a black box that spits out a number, you're like, what is this coming from, right? This, is, this isn't helping me. I don't get anything, uh, anything from that. And so, you know, what we've tried to do is, you know, some of our research is at least to kind of distill, you know, into things, kind of picking up the most important factors that are responsible for why the algorithm is saying what it is at that time point, whether it's going to be something wrong with, you know, the patient's hemodynamics, whether it's going to be something, you know, with their, with lab work, whether it's going to be a trend in something to at least kind of alert the provider about, you know, why is this algorithm doing that? So it's something that they're not just sitting there. Well, this machine, you know, this is something stupid. This isn't adding anything to it, to what I'm doing. So it's, you know, it's kind of, you know, using, you know, kind of the best of what we can do with these algorithms to again, Work with the clinician to kind of increase, you know, what they're doing, and I think, you know, some of the results that you know Dr. Namadi's lab has shown in the past have been fantastic. You know, with kind of picking up on, you know, sepsis four to six hours ahead of time, and you know, what the the paper that you know that's under review right now that I I sent you earlier was looking at, you know, how can we use these algorithms to kind of pick up on these patients that are going to have delayed septic shock, and again, you know, the numbers look really really good because it's drawing on you know the experience of you know. I think we had, you know, 18,000 patients, right, you know, with sepsis to kind of distill down with looking at 40 variables that we can't do as a clinician, right? I'm I'm lucky if I can keep, you know, four or five things straight when I look at a patient's chart, you know, the data that I get right there. But, you know, to really utilize this, you know, what we can do by looking at all these these patterns that are kind of popping up and put them into something uh, through using these algorithms that says, hey, you know, this person's at risk of developing bad sepsis. They're at risk of, you know, kind of developing septic shock. And again, the goal would be to kind of have something that is interpretable interpretable by the provider so that they could act on that.
0: You have to do that symbiosis. Like you said, it has to be that the human is actually trusting what the machine is saying. And this is, again, it's just another form of it. We do this already. We look at the pulse ox on a patient's finger and say, well, that must be right. And we never question the algorithm behind that that is actually interpreting the oxygen saturation and spitting out a number we don't question that for an end title we don't question that for blood pressure we just have kind of accepted it and so as technology is getting better i think this paper you did is amazing it just took more data than any person i think could actually dredge through identified a top 20 associations for the development of septic shock and then really formed a screening model from it. It's, it's a machine that's able to look for the patterns that we can't necessarily pick out with our eyes and our minds.
1: I think that's a wonderful way of kind of putting it. And like I said, you know, that's the first part is, you know, kind of the retrospective side, but, you know, kind of the, the more ambitious question, right, is, you know, kind of moving forward, you know, can we do this in you know, some kind of randomized trial to show that there's actually benefit to the clinician? Because this is one of, the, you know, kind of the central themes, you know, with a lot of what people are doing right now is you can come up with a great algorithm, but if it's not improving kind of as us as end users, kind of what we're doing, you got to ask yourself, right? What are we doing with this? Right. It's like any kind of research, if it's not improving something and kind of pushing us forward to help with the care or to help, you know, better diagnose someone, you know, what's the benefit? So I'm excited about, you know, I think that's some of our next steps that we're that we're looking at with this, because I think, you know, when I've taken a look at the, the literature, I think there's only been one randomized trial using machine learning algorithms to pick up on sepsis. And it showed some positive results. But again, I think we're pretty excited about, you know, kind of getting something, you know, moving forward at UC San Diego where we can kind of evaluate for this to see, you know, just how good these algorithms are to how they're actually helping our clinicians with the diagnosis of sepsis and delayed septic shock.
0: It's so cool because as much as we want to put sepsis in a box and every patient with sepsis will have these factors um, you know, when it was originally just SERS plus a source, I can keep that in my head. As soon as it yeah. goes one step further to QSOFA, I start to go, y- you know what, I can't I can't remember all of this. And it's not all going to come together. It's not really going to be, uh, you know, the same. And not all sepsis is necessarily the same. You've got different hosts and you've got different types. And so it's, no- it's not anything that I can really figure out. But this actually might be able to distinguish between different types of sepsis and different in different patient populations because you have the ability to look at all of these different variables yeah. at once.
1: And so that's, a, you know, kind of it's one of the nice things about this, you know, and, you know, when we talk about, you know, a little bit about transfer learning and some stuff like that, uh, you know, in a little bit. But it really does, you know, the nice thing about these machine learning algorithms is, you know, the more you train them on data, the better they get. So it's something that, you know, if, you know, we did a lot of this was, you know, based on data from UC San Diego and Emory. But, you know, the more data that kind of gets fed into it, the, you know, that's one of the hallmarks of these machine learning algorithms is, right, is you give them something, they continue to improve, and they can get better and better and better. So, you know, again, you know, I think for the the paper that you're looking at right there, you know, I think it was, you know, 15,000 patients, if you give it 50,000 patients, results get better, you know a million patients, it gets even better. And so I think, you know, that's honestly, you know, one of the the big things right now is, you know, kind of getting the appropriate data. And, you know, that data is, you know, people have said that, you know, data is becoming, you know, kind of the new oil, so to speak, because there's so much important stuff that we get from that. And, you know, honestly, I have a lot of respect for the informatics and on the analytics side for, you know, actually abstracting this to make sure that it's something that's usable, because that's not an easy task. And I'm sure you're probably aware of what went on with coronavirus with Surgicell very recently, you know, where we had, you know, someone that claimed they had a fantastic or database, right? And then there were some issues with that, you know, getting the, the correct data and, you know, pulling it out of the electronic health record uh, is something that, that is a challenge. And again, I've been very fortunate to work with some people that have done
0: a fantastic job kind of, you know, making sure that that's easy for us here. Yeah, whether or not your data is clean is definitely a big question now. Yep. Well, let's get to the second paradigm you talked about with transfer learning, saying that transfer learning can improve the generalizability and portability of machine learning yeah. algorithms. So, first, talk a little bit about what transfer learning is.
1: You know, it, again, it sounds impressive, but it's, you know, if you want to kind of distill it down to the most basic thing, I'd say if you think about storing knowledge that you got from solving one problem and applying it to a slightly different problem. All right. And so, you know, there's many applications of that. You know, the one that we used in a paper that I sent you was that we, you know, trained a model to pick up on delayed septic shock at one institution. And then what we wanted to do is basically shift it over to another institution and then kind of fine tune it based on the characteristics of that institution itself. Now, the rationale for doing this is a lot of times it's pretty computationally expensive To develop a new algorithm, you have to go through many iterations. There's lots and lots of training that goes on. And particularly if it's something that doesn't have a ton of data, right? your your results aren't going to be as good. So the whole concept behind this is if you train up an algorithm using one set of data and you find an application that's somewhat similar. And in our case, we just chose going from site A to site B. That a lot of times by fine-tuning the data using some, again, some fancy algorithms that are, you know, honestly beyond me, when we start talking about doing gradient descent, that's where, you know, again, the mathematics, I'm very grateful to work with people that, you know, that are kind of leading, you know, pushing the, uh, this forward. But the whole point is you basically are allowed to use this data and then it, with relatively cheap on the computational side fine-tunes your algorithm. And, you know, kind of using the example that we had is that we looked at, you know, kind of the area under the curve for predicting who is going to get septic shock between four and 36 hours after being seen in the ED triage. And we were able to find, right, you know, that we got a pretty significant increase in the area under the curve by first developing the algorithm at one institution, fine-tuning it using this you know using gradient descent, which would be the transfer learning component and then really kind of making it much more portable and much more customizable for kind of what we were seeing at UC San Diego So I think you know it, uh, and again I know thats it, it sounds a little bit weird but it really does you know kind of get to one of the, the fundamental issues we've seen in research which is that external validity And as you know there's been many decision rules in emergency medicine that have been derived at one site and then when we try to send them elsewhere, what happens? A lot of them don't really stand that test of time. And there's obviously ways to kind of do this, right? One would be just to get a ton of sites to kind of throw all their data in there, right? You've got stuff, you know, again, using NFM as an example. If everyone, you know, all the, the sites through all their data, you know, to try to answer a specific question, you could do that, right? You'd probably have pretty good results, but that's going to be a very, very time-consuming process. And the whole point of transfer learning would be that if you derive something at one site, And again, answering a similar question, using that model already and letting these algorithms kind of fine tune themselves on much less data to have something that gives you honestly pretty good results. So it does really help with uh, improving that external validity of algorithms. And, you know, that's one of the beauties, again, of using, you know, of, you know, some of these machine learning techniques is because you're able to do that relatively easy.
0: When you say generalizability and portability, though, what specifically are you talking about with uh, in regards to these algorithms?
1: Sure, yeah, so with generalizability, that just means, you know, whatever institution, whatever site, whatever basically platform, you know, patient population that you're using is that you can get something that actually makes sense. So, you know, again, going back to the, you know, what we were talking about with, you know, external validity, I'll use the San Francisco Sinkibi rule, for instance, right? That was derived in San Francisco. We started to try to see some validations in Boston, didn't do nearly as well. You know, if if you looked at the test characteristics of that, it kind of fell flat a little bit. And again, it's still, it's, it's, it's very impressive what we, know, what was kind of done, but right, you the question was, is that able to answer, you know, will this person have a bad outcome at my institution? And you're like, well, if you're in San Francisco, awesome, right? We know that this does very, very well there. But outside of that arena, right, you start to have some questions, right? Why is it not performing as well? So when we say generalizability, we mean that we can take an algorithm that's been developed at one site and start to see it being used all across in a way that we don't have to get data from everyone. And that's the purpose of, you know, kind of going through with, you know, there's multiple ways, you know, mathematical ways of kind of doing this. The one we used was gradient descent. But what this does is it basically takes data from that, from a, you know, from a second set and it, fine-tunes the algorithm to make sure that it works well on it there so it's again it's a nice luxury to have and you know we're excited you know hopefully this will get you know published relatively soon since it's under review at annals right now but it's a nice way to kind of make sure that something is generalizable rather than getting data from the you know an entire country or something like you know along those lines where you have you know just a ton of sites this makes it much more easy and then on the portability side you know there's two things to kind of say about that you know one obviously like i said is you know a lot of these algorithms are very you know computationally expensive to kind of develop and train and it doesn't make sense for me at uc san diego to, work, to develop something that works fantastic then for you to basically go through at the university of arizona and design your own algorithm if we make it at uc san diego we could ship it over to you guys you could fine-tune it on your own data and suddenly whatever just you know whatever for whatever reason that we're picking up on sepsis with a different you know slightly different patient population or hospitals might be you know have we have a lots of bone marrow transplant patients. I'm not sure kind of what, you know, whatever, you know, specific patient populations you guys have there, but there are gonna be differences between kind of what we're seeing because we're geographically distinct. And so by allowing this portability from, you know, from one site to another, It's a nice little thing to do, but also then by fine-tuning, it, you really kind of increase the yield. Uh, And that's what we showed in our paper is, you know, with a a relatively advanced machine learning algorithm that, you know, taking it from one site to another, we lost a decent amount on its area under the curve to kind of pick up on these patients. But then by using, you know, the concept of transfer learning with gradient descent, we bumped that up back to, you know, kind of it was extremely similar to what we got at the initial site.
0: Yeah, and I think that uh, the, the important thing kind of taken from this, it's, it's really fascinating to kind of learn the insides of it, to learn how this is kind of dredged, how this is brought together. But the nice thing is that once you're all done with it, you don't have to understand machine learning or transfer learning or any of these no. terms to actually use these algorithms and to use your data to improve patient care. Let's talk about your third paradigm, which is a very specific instance. It's highly relevant right now, and that's that the need for tracheal intubation in patients with COVID-19 can be predicted with machine learning algorithms. So... This is something that is is highly topical right now, especially with the rate of intubations, the concern about intubations, the concern about provider safety, patient safety in this new disease entity that we have never really experienced before. It's acting unlike anything that we've seen, and it, it's been fascinating to see how as scientists who really rely on our evidence-based medicine when there's no evidence to back us up what do we fall back on and so using machine learning algorithms you've been able to incorporate the data with covid-19 to actually look at this and try to make some predictions
1: yeah and so i think you know you i imagine at your shop it's pretty similar to what we're seeing where you know everyone is kind of anything covid related is suddenly Extremely popular; that everyone is trying to jump on this uh, and to come up with something meaningful and useful. And I'm sure also that you've seen that some of the, at least some of the I've, things I've reviewed recently, looking at COVID probably aren't the best and you know there's not really any benefit that we really gain and then you look at them and the methods are somewhat sloppy although everyone has been fixated on it and trying to see what we can do to best care for these patients. So we were you know we were sitting around and you know again we were you know kind of encouraged right to, to come up with some ways that we could kind of you know do something that would be useful that would help actually providers with you know the management of how they're approaching covid and since I split my time in the ICU you know one of the, the hot Things is right is when do you intubate this patient? Do they benefit from it? And honestly, right is uh, you know kind of the deeper question is you know what can you do in a hospital that's honestly stretched relatively thin with resources, right? How many ventilators do they have? How much staff should they have in their ICU? And then also, can you try to avoid a crash intubation? Because I'm sure you've been in the same boat where we are, where ideally these patients, it's not oh my gosh, you know this is we're running in the room right now as someone is making sure their N95 is fitting properly. Fumbling for medicines, forgetting that they put on their face mask properly, is that ideally you'd kind of have some kind of lag time to identify these patients to make sure it's controlled as possible. So we thought this would be an interesting kind of topic to, you know, to, to look at, right? To see can we predict using some of these algorithms who's going to need tracheal intubation anywhere from you know from four to you know 36 hours or four to forty-eight hours ahead of time. And so we said this sounds like a great idea. So let's take a look at the data at UC San Diego. And like most places, we didn't have a ton of patients with COVID that were intubated. In fact, most of our patients are transfers that come already intubated as we get requests for ECMO uh, and kind of higher level of care. So we teamed up with another center that had seen some more patients. But even then, you know, we weren't getting huge amounts of numbers of these patients that were, you know, being intubated in the ICU with COVID. So what we decided to do was first was to kind of come up with, a, you know, with a, with a model to see who would need to be intubated using just all cum respiratory failure by ex- obviously excluding patients in the operating room, uh, and to see how that would perform. And so again, using you know about forty commonly used variables that are it, it, what we call input features that clinicians look at all the time: heart rate, respiratory rate, blood gas results. You know, we came up with, uh, you know, with a machine learning model to kind of predict, again, at these different prediction windows from six hours, I'm sorry, from four hours to to, uh, 48 hours to see how good an algorithm could do to predict who's going to be intubated in the ICU. And so the numbers look pretty good. And again, right, this is, it's not really that much of a surprise when you're looking at from large sample sizes. I think we looked at, there was over 30,000 patients that we, you know, the initial model was made on using lots and lots of data. And so then what we did was, again, use some of the methods that, you know, we talked about with transfer learning uh, by looking at, you know, doing some gradient descent to kind of fine tune this on COVID patients to see if we could translate what we learned, what the machine learning algorithm learned with all outcome respiratory failure to see if it would actually fall on over to, uh, to COVID patients. And so along the way to kind of justify this and saying that it's actually useful, we decided to, you know, use what other clinicians are probably using in the ICU, something called the ROCS index is something that's relatively popular. You know, it's a, it looks at basically respiratory rate, oxygen use, and, you know, little division and you're basically given a number to kind of see, will someone be intubated, you know, will we predict someone needs to be intubated in the next few hours? So we wanted to compare it to that, but also kind of, you know, just generalized common sense, right, it is something that's a, a very, you know, simple little model looking at the things that I look at would you know for seeing if someone needs to be intubated things like heart rate, respiratory rate, blood gas results to see if that how that would do and then to compare it to the machine learning model. Good luck, you know, or at least we had good luck with our, you know, the results. It was statistically significant that the machine learning model did, you know, kind of outperform the rocks index and also, you know, kind of the little generic one that that we made. And so it was, you know, it was kind of exciting, right? Because it sums up a lot of what we've talked about, you know, kind of how, you know, learning what, or at least I learned with, you know, kind of the approach of machine learning for sepsis to put it to a, a similar problem, but to have good results, too. Uh, and again, I was, you know, very fortunate to work with a fantastic team. I had wonderful mentorship, you know, both with, you know, Dr. M- on Dr. Namadi's side, but also some members of the the critical care team. You know, we all kind of work together to come up with this. And so, you know, we put it down, at, you know, in paper, and it's under review right now. But we're hoping for the best because I think it's something that's pretty exciting
0: going forward. Well, and especially for something like COVID nineteen, which is a new disease entity, and we're really making decisions based off of case yeah. reports and Facebook. Um,
1: Don't forget it, Twitter, I think that's uh,
0: it. Yeah, yeah, I certainly can't forget Twitter. So, uh, uh, you know, that this allows you to really analyze some of this data in real time and make some descriptions about it not even what do we do but how is this disease behaving so the one thing i'd really like for you to speak on and this goes to machine learning in general but you know our our airway gurus some of the more experienced docs they like to say you know there's no test that can tell you whether or not somebody needs to be intubated it's it's all your clinical gestalt. You get you have to be able to make the decision on your own. You just need to know whether or not they need to be intubated, and you say, "Well, how do I do that?" And they look at you and say, "Experience." And I think it's if you have the experience, it's an easy thing to say. When you don't have the experience, it's incredibly difficult. So, where does machine learning kind of have an interface with your clinical so, opinion?
1: Well, I think you know there's there's two ways to kind of look at this, right? You know, on one hand you know, kind of, you know, the prediction of someone that seems like they'll need to be intubated, you know, the next 24 hours, the next 36 hours, right? It's nice to kind of have that information. And again, this was designed for ICU providers, but so you can kind of start preparing, right? You know, that means that extra situational awareness about, hey, I should check on on this patient a little bit more. See, is something kind of going on, you know, is their breathing pattern changing? Are they needing more oxygen to kind of increase that situational awareness to kind of say, all right, you know, now we're worried about this person, at least we'll kind of watch them a little bit more. So on one hand, you know, that kind of, again, it puts that, you know, I guess, you know, kind of that spidey sense, so to speak, you know, it gives you that extra little, you know, that extra little, you know, piece of, you know, that nugget of knowledge to kind of follow these patients. The other thing it gives you, though, I think that's probably more useful is identifying patients that, don't need to be intubated in the next, you know, day, day and a half, two days. And just as clinicians, right, you know, a lot of times we like tests that rule things out, right? If, if you can rule something out, you're happy. And what we found actually is that this actually performed very, very well at predicting people that did not need to be intubated. That's so, right. Exactly. Right. And, you know, again, right from, you know, from a resource u- utilization, right, that means one less person on a ventilator, you know, one less respiratory therapist that has to spend some time, you know, from a scheduling point, that can be something important as well to to, the, to, to the look at and to think about. So we were pretty excited about this. And I think, you know, using those two things, that's the, the hope. Right, is both on you know the patients that there's a chance and you know we didn't find the positive predictive value was you know was anywhere near 100%, but it does put that on your radar. But the negative predictive value of this was actually quite high, uh, and I think that's a very very useful thing. Um, and obviously, you know, kind of what we found too, right, is the closer you are to when someone got intubated, that the algorithm did better, which I think makes sense, right? That's just you know that's again goes to kind of clinical gestalt, right? Looking at someone 24 hours ahead of time. You might have, no, you know, there's. It's much easier to kind of say, I have no clue what's going to happen to them then. But as you get closer and closer to the event, that's when you start seeing these signs, and that's what the algorithm is kind of going through too, uh, and just approaching using these patterns that it's picking up through analysis of the data.
0: Yeah, uh, going through the quarantine period, we watched Star Wars with my kids, and the ER doctors. We like to think we're a little more Han Solo. Never tell me the odds, but we need the we need we need someone to tell us the odds. Sometimes it really helps to inform your your decision, even if your gestalt is you know I've seen this, I got an idea of what's going on, because this this is really what we teach people off of. You mentioned like the San Francisco syncope rule that that's absolutely what I learned in medical school. And you learn it as this is the way it is. I think that as machine learning algorithms kind of permeate more of what we do clinically, that it's going to impact teaching. And what we teach the medical students as this is correct or incorrect, this is a way of thinking about it. And then you know it's, it seems to be happening so much more quickly than it used to that we can tell them this is dynamic this is what this is the best we have right now, but keep your eyes out and remember that everything you learned in medical school will be wrong someday. <laughs> I
1: think that's a fair statement. And, you know, honestly, like, you know, like you, you picked up, right, This it's an incredibly hot field right now. And, you know, if you look at, you know, in terms of the number of machine learning uh, publications in the past uh, five years, it's increased by threefold. And, you know, there's well over 7,000 articles on this that have been published in 2018. So again, it's something where there's a lot of excitement about doing. I think just that, you know, the pitfall I initially fell into is well, this is going to solve all my problems. This is going to be perfect. We're going to pick up on every single septic patient well beforehand. They're all going to get, you know, screened. They're going to get an appropriate bundle if it makes sense. But, uh, you know, it's the it's the tempering that enthusiasm to realize, right, that, you know, you've got to make this something that people can use that makes sense to them, because if you lose the trust on these things, it's a little bit more difficult. If I'm shooting out a black box number at you that says this person's probably going to be intubated in the next 24 hours, you're going to look at me like I'm crazy, you know. So it's again, it's making these things interpretable and seeing if they can legitimately aid in kind of our workflow as clinicians and I think that's really the exciting thing with these because anyone can come up with using data right something on you know the retrospective observational study but moving forward it's really getting these you know into some prospective evaluations with some randomized trials to see how they're improving things if they are
0: yeah this is a this is a far step beyond just data dredging and looking for associations and then publishing associations you know a lot of what we have for COVID-19 right now is associations but to actually have causation, to actually have exactly. uh, a description of the disease. This is something that can certainly be done a lot more quickly with machine learning. And I'm very excited to see what kind of stuff you're able to churn out from this. This is a great field.
1: We're actually doing the same thing with emergency department patients on COVID to kind of pick up who's, who's going to need to be intubated. So Emory was nice enough to kind of, uh, you know, to, to partner up with us to put a, a little grant together through the National Foundation of Emergency Medicine. So we're going to try to see how good we can do the ED with this also.
0: Well, that's great. We appreciate your time with us today. Uh, we're really, really happy to highlight your research. I think it's going to make a huge difference in what we actually do clinically. Just to sum up again, your paradigms were, number one, that human-machine symbiosis with machine learning algorithms can aid in the early detection of sepsis and septic shock. Number two, transfer learning can improve generalizability and portability of machine learning algorithms. And number three, the need for tracheal intubation in patients with COVID-19 can be predicted with machine learning algorithms. So again, Dr. Wardy is one of the scholars supported by the National Foundation of Emergency Medicine. Hear more from him and others at www.nfoem.com. Thanks for listening.